Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Welcome uh, to this Institute for Government discussion on what does a Biden presidency mean for the UK. Uh, my name is Richard Lambert. Uh, I'm on the board of the Institute and I'm standing in today for our director, Bronwyn Maddox. Uh, here's, here's the plan. In a moment, I'll introduce you to our uh, stellar plan panel. Each of them will talk for four or five minutes. Then we'll have a general discussion for 20 minutes or so. And then over to you for 20 minutes of uh, comment, questions, whatever you feel in the mood for. And please, you'll see, uh, keep the questions coming from the beginning because then I can pop them into the panelists as, they, as they're talking to embarrass them if that's possible. Um, and um, we could run through in, in, in that way. Uh, if you'd like, add your name uh, and your location to your question as you pop it up on the screen. Uh, the, this event is on the record. Uh, there'll be a video and sound recording up on the IFG website in the next uh, 24 hours. They're going to be tweeting away uh, from at IFG events using the hashtag IFG POTUS 2020. And please feel free uh, to tweet along yourselves. So here's the panel. We're going to start with Dan Boltz, who's chief correspondent of The Washington Post, um, covering national politics, the presidency, uh, Congress. He's written some great articles, obviously some great books. And if you've ever watched uh, current affairs television in the US, you've seen uh, Dan. He wrote a piece the other day saying um, uh, the new president couldn't afford to make any mistakes. He had to hit the ground running. So he's going to tell us the difference between uh, uh, President Biden and President uh, Trump. Then we have Elizabeth Dibble, who is chief operating officer at the Carnegie Institute. Uh, she joined there in 2017 after a long uh, service in the diplomatic service in the United States, uh, in the Middle East, in Europe, um, economics. She was the uh, deputy chief of uh, mission here in the UK in 2013 to 2016 and made loads of friends in London. So it's great to have her here with us. Um, then we have uh, Paul Tucker. Uh, Paul is chair of the Systemic Risk Council a fellow at Harvard Kennedy School, uh, former uh, deputy governor of the Bank of England, uh, wrote a rippling good book um, a, a few months ago, which I strongly recommend. Um, he's going to talk about um, the economy and trade, but you can't really do that without politics. So knowing Paul, I bet he veers into politics as well. Uh, and then finally, but uh, to, to ringing with great triumph, we have Emily Tampkin, uh, who's going to talk the UK and um, Boris Johnson relationships, a complex story there. She uh, obviously is the Washington correspondent of the New States. We had a great piece, uh, I think, in today's issue, was it in today, about is uh, Joe Biden going to take uh, foreign policy to the left? And since you might say that Boris Johnson is taking UK foreign policy to the right, you can tell us whether they'll ever meet in the middle there, uh, Emily. But let's start off with uh, Dan. Over to you, Dan. Richard, thank you uh, and welcome to everybody. Uh, um, the topic I've been asked to talk about here at the top is uh, the ways in which President Biden or President-elect Biden and President Trump are different. Um, I think if we could go on forever on that subject. It might be in what ways they are similar. And I guess the only ways is that they will eventually share the title of president of the United States. But but in almost every other way, um, these are two strikingly different people. And I think as a result of that, we're going to see a strikingly different administration. Um, start with just simply personality and style. I mean, the, the, the current president, as we have seen for the last four years, uh, operates almost entirely out of gut instinct. Um, and the president-elect uh, is somebody who uh, is 
you know, a, 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 not just simply a, a creature of public service for 50 years, but somebody whose personality is grounded uh, in the notion of reaching out to people, uh, working across party lines, which is again anathema to the way the current president has operated. So I think uh, what we have seen really over the last seven or eight months as we have been in the middle of the pandemic um, is um, Joe Biden trying to model what he thinks would be presidential behavior, uh, which is to say a, a much more responsible approach uh, to dealing with the pandemic, but also uh, in the, the way he is communicating about things as a, as an opposition to the current president. And so in, in that way, they're significantly different. Obviously, the, the level of experience that Joe Biden brings to the presidency um, is, is in such striking contrast to President Trump, uh, who had no governmental experience and no military experience uh, and business experience of a, of a limited way, which is to say uh, running a, a family company as opposed to running uh, a major corporation. Um, Joe Biden has been in public life literally for a, a half a century, um, starting when he was elected to the Senate in 1972, uh, he won the election when he was not actually 30 years old, which is the threshold by which you have to be uh, to be uh, in the Senate. He passed that threshold uh, a few weeks after his election in 1972. Uh, he served four decades in the Senate. He served eight years in the vice presidency. Um, he is fully experienced both domestically and internationally, as, as those of you abroad uh, are well aware. Um, so he will he will approach this job in a much more serious and systematic way uh, than the current president has. Um, he will trust in experts. He will rely on the scientists in, in dealing with COVID, um, and and he will he will look to um, other people with experience and professionalism uh, to guide him um, in areas where both where he is familiar and in areas where he is not familiar. He's comfortable, as it's clear, uh, with the cabinet that he is putting together. He's comfortable with people from lots of different backgrounds, from lots of different experiences, um, but he also has over 50 years um, or through 50 years of experience, he has an enormous network of people that he knows uh, who he has watched and who he is bringing into the administration and both both people of, of long standing, but also younger people. And so I think that's one of the things we are going to see. This is a this is a transition uh, that is being done in a in a much more professional way than the than the Trump transmit transition was, um, and and I think that, um, that 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 augurs well at least for the start. The piece that Richard re referenced that I wrote about um, was basically to say all transitions are a little bit bumpy, um, but the most important things a, a new president or an incoming president can do in the transition is to build the government, a White House staff. Uh, and the, the senior members of the cabinet. And he has done that and is doing that systematically. So, um, so far, his, uh, his approval rating has actually risen since the election as people have watched how he's performed uh, as opposed to how President Trump has performed. I wanna say one other thing about this transition and then I wanna make a comment about, about how this may affect uh, the UK. Um, we're in, a, we're in a, 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 an unprecedented uh, post-election period in this country, as you all well know, because of the way the president uh, is continuing, not simply not to concede, but to try to upend the election result. Um, it doesn't matter if he concedes or not. That's a, that's a, you know, that, that's of no great standing. But his efforts to undermine the vote, um, they have, they have had 
maybe 50 or 60 uh, lawsuits that have been brought in various places. They have won one out of all of those. It is a very minor one. Um, and so uh, he, is, he is in a systematic way uh, attempting to not just undermine the election, but undermine Biden's presidency. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that we will all have to watch as this goes forward. Um, we know that uh, one of the president's priorities, in addition to the, all of the domestic issues that he has, COVID, the economy, the racial justice issues, one of the priorities that this president has, or the incoming president has, uh, is to rebuild America's alliances in the world. And I think that he is serious about that. Um, as somebody said to me recently, when, when Biden thinks about foreign policy, he thinks about alliances. And when he thinks about alliances, he thinks about Europe. Um, I think the biggest factor um, in what will be the, the coming U.S.-U.K. relationship um, is the position of the U.K. Uh, not in Europe, uh, assuming that the Brexit does go through. Um, and that, I think, will have a, a significant effect, a potentially significant effect, on the role of the U.K. in its relationship with the United States. Um, intelligence and defense matters will continue to go on. There's areas for cooperation, perhaps, in climate um, but one of the things that, that uh, has been clear over the years, um, and Elizabeth knows this probably better than I, is that, um, that in, in many ways, uh, the U.S. looked to the U.K. Uh, to interpret Europe and, and also uh, to interpret the United States to Europe. Um, that will no longer be the case. And so the United States will have to, in the Biden administration, will have to develop a, a different, in a, in a sense, different sets of relationships uh, in dealing with Europe as opposed to dealing with the UK. I, I don't think we know quite how that will uh, take shape, but I think it's a, an important difference um, that will be uh, a change from all previous administrations. So Thank I will you. leave it at that. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Dan, very much. And it's a good segue into Elizabeth, because you, I think, are going to talk about alliances, conflict, China, Iran. There's a long list there, Elizabeth. Over to you. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. This is about the closest I've gotten to London in quite a while, and I think it's going to be a while before I get back there. But um, thank you so much. Um, as Dan said, you know, the initial focus of the administration is, is going to be domestic. Um, dealing with the COVID crisis, dealing with the economy, dealing with the issues of inequality. Um, but also, as Dan said, um, you know, Biden is, is probably the most experienced person I can think of in terms of his foreign policy chops. Um, he is also bringing in a very experienced foreign policy team and I expect that they will have a serious foreign policy process in place, which is something that has been sorely lacking over the, the past four years. Um, they will, uh, it will not be a personality-driven foreign policy process as we've seen with President Trump uh, and his various um, attempts to um, form not alliances, but personal relationships for reasons that don't necessarily uh, track with what we would call traditional U.S. interests. Um, I think, as, as Dan said, there will definitely be a return to valuing alliances and to repairing especially the frayed alliances, alliance with Europe that has uh, happened over the last 
few years. And that will be one of the, I think, the first things on the agenda to implement. Um, Tony Blinken uh, has long experience in Europe, dealing with Europe, and you will see that, I think, in, in a number of the other members of the team that have been named. Uh, for instance, um, Kamala Harris's National Security Advisor. So I think there will be uh, a real attempt to repair those alliances. Um, as Dan also said, the UK has traditionally played the role of the bridge between the US and Europe. And obviously that has changed with Brexit or assuming Brexit goes through that, that will change. So um, you're going to see, I think, more of a focus on direct contact with the European Union and other European institutions than perhaps we saw before. Um, people on this side of the Atlantic are watching the Brexit uh, process, have been watching it for the past four and a half years as uh, starting with the vote, have been watching this unfold. And as has been said, I think um, Vice President-elect Biden has made very clear that Northern Ireland and what will happen there is going to be really key. He does not want to see the um, re-imposition of a, a land border there. So that's going to be a, a, a key issue we're, we're going to be watching. Um, I know um, Sir Paul is going to talk about trade and economy. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the press about a US-UK trade deal. My own view is that will be further down on the agenda now as there are other issues that will take precedence. Uh, it's not that it's going to fall totally off the scope, but it'll be further down. I think um, when looking at the, the Biden administration's foreign policy challenges, um, you know, obviously they're very, the, the team is very experienced, as I mentioned, but the world has changed a lot in the last four years. Um, the US in many ways has been absent from the world stage and the world has, has moved on um, and other countries have moved in. China has continued to ascend in the world order. Uh, China is stronger. Um, others have been setting standards for trade and investment uh, regulations and standards. And so I think what you're going to see with the Biden administration is a more systemic approach to all of these issues but the U.S. Um, will no longer be front and center on everything. I mean, first of all, they're going to be looking a lot at what's going on at home. But secondly, there are other players who are um, front and center or more front and center than they were four years ago. Um, on Iran, briefly, um, the president-elect has expressed a desire to return to the Iran deal, which President Trump left several years ago. But again, the world has changed and it's hard to go back to, to reset the way things were when that in 2015 when the deal was struck. A lot has happened since then. And um, I think it's important to, to remember that, you know, the Iran deal is about the nuclear issue only. And it was only meant to deal with the nuclear issue. But there are a whole host of other issues with Iran and concerns about Iranian behavior ranging from terrorism to involvement in the wars in Syria and Yemen 
to um, cyber attacks, um, to Iran's ballistic missile capabilities. And these are things that were, have, were always there, but weren't part of the Iran deal itself. Coming back to it four years later, I have a hard time imagining that there won't be a strong push to incorporate these other issues. Um, curiously, from the Iranian perspective, um, Trump has been a, a, a very convenient boogeyman, a convenient enemy. And now that they won't have Trump to hide behind in a certain way, it also presents a challenge for Iran because they've been able to distract public opinion by pointing to, you know, the great Satan, the evil U.S. as, as the, the cause of all their problems. And now they're, they're, they're going to have to, uh, they're not going to have that convenient excuse. So it's, um, it's going to be, as they say, a very interesting time ahead and no shortages of issues or challenges to deal with. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Elizabeth. That's, uh, that's great. Uh, and now it's uh, Paul Tucker's turn. Economy, trade, whatever else you want to talk about, Paul. Thank you very much, Richard. I was really, really pleased that Elizabeth picked up trade and some of the other economic issues. We have already lived through a decade. I think we're going to live through at least another quarter of a century, probably half a century, in which the, the kind of siloed world of economic policy is over here and um, foreign policy and defence policy is over there. That, that's, that's over. In, in my world, Paul Volcker is the last great figure to have been completely comfortable um, in aligning economic policy with geopolitical policy, but that's where we um, are. And by the way, just as an aside, Richard, I hope later that somehow we manage to bring India into the conversation. Five or six points about that. The, the, the first is that, that my experience when I was in office was that was one experienced quite a lot of frustration from um, DC about Europe and the in the EU. I think that will change. Beijing's um, policy towards the EU is essentially divide and rule to try and deal with member states as individual member states. The Trump administration essentially spoke Beijing's script by continuing in the same vein. I would be doubtful um, that the Biden administration would make the same mistake. I think what made sense to the United States 10 to 15 years ago doesn't make sense for it um, in the geopolitical conjuncture. That's the first thing. The second thing is I would expect them to be not loud about this, but very careful about the status of the dollar um, as the world's preeminent reserve currency. This is not just an element in economic policy. This is an, an element in, in US and Western, indeed Western power. I think what that means for, for Europeans, including for people in Britain, is be careful about speaking about succession to the dollar, replacing the dollar with this or that kind of new um, idea. This isn't just a matter of economic policy. This is kind of above the pay grade of economic policymakers and, and commentators. But on the other side of that, and former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew spoke eloquently about this a couple of years ago, and I think it was published in Foreign Affairs. I, I would, I would expect, and certainly hope, that the Biden administration would kind of review the sanctions policy. I mean, the sanctions policy is essentially instrumentalizing um, the dollar as an economic weapon, and that's fine some of the time, but it can be overused. 
And I think Jack certainly had that sense a couple of years ago, and I would expect them to be more careful about that. On trade, um, as both Elizabeth and, and Dan said, I mean, everybody's woken up rather late to the fact that, of course, trade does affect domestic circumstances and the administration, given President Trump did incredibly well in um, in this election. Well, others would say not incredibly, just well. He did well, and the Republicans did very um, um, well. And that's uh, that's a manifestation of some of the difficulties in U.S. domestic society. And we should expect a Biden administration, any new administration, including if President Trump had had been re-elected, to attend to domestic economic circumstances first. I think that will. That's something that the UK will learn as it negotiates a trade deal with the with the US eventually. But the key thing about trade is is that trade is is trade policy is for big blocks. It is dominated by very big countries with medium incomes, such as China, and medium-sized jurisdictions with very high incomes, such as the United States and the EU. I think we should think of the US and and the EU as medium-sized countries with very large incomes. And the thought experiment is, imagine China with the same incomes that we have. I mean, it would be very large um, indeed. And the really big question is whether the Biden administration will return in, in, in its new form to what was the Trans-Pacific uh, Trade Agreement. I think one of the greatest strategic mistakes in when US-led um, foreign policy of the last quarter of a century is dropping um, that deal at the beginning of the Trump administration. It will be very, very interesting to see where, and very important for Europe, very important um, in a smaller way for Britain um, to see whether that kind of Pacific economic um, setup can be can be rekindled. Two other points very, very quickly. The first is um, this has been highlighted by the last 12 months of a, of a pandemic. I think there will be, um, under any administration, but certainly under a Biden administration, much greater um, um, attention to the resilience and the vulnerability of the American economy in terms of over-dependence on suppliers from elsewhere in the world, and whether those suppliers are in friendly countries or unfriendly countries. And friendly is a weaker thing than ally. Um, interdependence, is the core of international um, endeavor, but over-dependence is a mistake. And th this is easy to say, but actually navigating that without avoiding over-dependence without slipping back into autarky and, and an absurd kind of protectionism is actually going to be very difficult to do. Finally, and here's an area where I think the UK um, can make a difference, um, it would be a disaster. And I'm sure the people entering the Biden administration think it would be a disaster for the US to be at the center of another um, financial crisis. The damage done to the United States, to its domestic peace, if you like, and to its international standing by being the epicenter of the last um, crisis has been an enormous. Um, Janet Yellen, both when in office leading the Fed and since, is really serious about financial stability. And I say that because many of the people watching will think of her as essentially a macroeconomist or people that know more about her will think of her as a labor economist. She was very, very serious in my experience about financial stability. And I'm absolutely certain um, that she she remains so. And I think that if, if, if London tries to soften its standards in this area, as actually I believe 
it did in obscure ways try to do and probably did over the past four to five years. I, I think that Washington um, won't welcome that. Washington should not be prepared um, for the other key Western financial centre of London to take risks in ways that could damage Western interests. And finally, but I think this is macro policy, I think this will depend enormously on the outcome of the Georgia Senate um, runoff in, in, in January. If the Democrats, against the um, likelihood at the moment, were to take um, the Senate, then I think we would see Yellen fiscal policy. And I think Yellen fiscal policy will absolutely transform the balance of thinking about um, monetary policy and fiscal policy, which would certainly affect thinking here. Actually, the UK could do it anyway, but I don't expect the UK to do it without leadership from the US. If, if the Republicans keep Georgia, then I think we will get Yellen credit policy um, implemented by the Federal Reserve um, and the Bank of England will get drawn along um, in its wake. And the issue for there actually, for the UK, is, is can the UK actually set its own path rather than following the examples of the US and the Euro area? Thank you uh, very much indeed, uh, Paul. Now over to Emily. Emily's uh, task is to describe the relationship between Vice President, uh, President-elect Biden and a man who has been described as Britain Trump. How's that going to work, Emily? Um, well, first I wanted to say thank you to you and to the Institute for Government for having me this morning or this afternoon, wherever you are, uh, to discuss these two unique men um, and their relationship to one another. You know, I, I, I want to say first that I do understand where people are coming from with their trepidation between about the, the Johnson-Biden relationship. Um, I think that there, obviously there will be people in the Biden administration who remember the Obama days. And you know, we already saw um, former Obama staffer Tommy Veter come out and say, you know, you you cozied up to, to Trump for four years, Johnson, or for however long they were both in office, Johnson. And we remember what you said about uh, Obama and his Kenyan ancestry and how that's why he didn't want Brexit. And, and I think, I, I do think that, you know, it's, we're right to think that these two will have a professional, but maybe not particularly close or warm relationship. Um, having said that, and I wrote a version of this for the New Statesman, so if anybody read it there, first of all, congratulations on your excellent editorial taste. And secondly, I apologize for a bit of, a bit of repetition, but I think because there's this idea of the special relationship, um, both sides, the U.S. does this as well, tend to put a lot of emphasis on individuals and symbols. So the most incredible example of this was obviously the Churchill bust in the Obama years and how, you know, the bust went back to the U.K. and the other bust moved out of the Oval Office to elsewhere in the White House and it was a whole issue. And then Trump brought the bust back uh, and, and Trump loves the Queen, which is fine. But, but Trump also kept British diplomats in the U.S. scrambling to save the JCPOA, knowing full well that he was going to withdraw from it. And I use I use this example because um, I, I think that although it's not, you know, sure, fine, I will grant you that Biden and Johnson are not going to have a, a special relationship. It's still an incredibly robust relationship. You know, there's people like like Elizabeth and her former colleagues who keep it running on the day to day. There's there's climate change that they need to work on together. There's the JCPOA. There's the defense relationship. There's the intelligence relationship. There's all of the students in America who go to study abroad in the UK every year. You know, there's like there, there's soft culture as well. And so I think that I, I do think that the the two that, that actually 
under Biden, Boris Johnson has a better chance of getting more done in a multilateral space than he did with Trump, who showed great antagonism toward any multilateral forum. The caveat to this is that the American side has Americans, more, the American political scene pretty generally, but the Biden team in particular has been very clear about the fact that they do not, as Elizabeth said, that they do not want to see anything that will jeopardize their interpretation of the Good Friday Agreement, which means nothing to disturb the peace between Ireland and, and Northern Ireland. Um, they really do mean that. And I was a little surprised to see some people say that, oh, some people in, in the British press or, or punditry space to say, oh, that's about the Irish American vote or, oh, that's because of Biden's Irish ancestry. First of all, please stop chalking things up to the president's ancestry. It's not helpful. Th that would be my advice to any British politician who happened to have found his way into this event. Yes. Enough. Um, but secondly, I would just say that, and, and the American Irish voter thing just shows it's a, just a misreading of the, the U.S. electorate, right? There's That's not really how we think of, of voting blocks at this time. But, but the, the better point is that, you know, this is an important agreement to the American, to most American politicians, particularly to Democrats. They're telling you that this is very important to them and that it could jeopardize relations and a trade deal. Why are you not taking them at face value? Right. Why is it easier to say, oh, it's just because Biden's Irish than to say, no, this is something that's very important to the Americans. And if we want good working relations, then we either respect it or we don't. And by not respecting it, we understand that we're, we're jeopardizing this relationship. Um, that, to me, is far more important and, and will be far more important. The, the kind of good faith that both sides put uh, um, with which both sides approach the relationship and also one another's clearly stated intentions. That's more important than, you know, Boris Johnson's personality to the U.S.-U.K. relationship over the next four years. That's um, that's uh, that's good to hear. <laughs> uh, thank you very much indeed, um, Emily. Let's uh, just have a few minutes of uh, talking. I, I, what what I'm doing so, I might actually throw in a few questions as they appear up on the screen. I mean, one a lot of people are interested in uh, to start off with. Um, Elizabeth, I'll turn to you. Uh, the China story. Um, we're told that, and uh, Kerry here is throwing in a question. We're told that the core approach to China won't change much under Biden, but that the new president will champion a more diplomatic approach. What are we thoughts? On, what are your thoughts on how Biden will approach China? Uh, and Kerry's particularly interested in cyber matters, but any general approach uh, thoughts would be helpful, I think. Um, I think that's actually a good observation. Um, you know, in the United States, I think there is the feeling that um, President Trump has in confronting China on many of these issues has pushed American interests um, in ways that his predecessors of both parties did not previously. Um, but it's perhaps the the style here, uh, the, you know, the very confrontational uh, style and, and, you know, calling the COVID the Wuhan flu or the China virus, you know, things like that, that that all of that is unnecessary, but that China, as it has become such a major player in the world, um, needs to be treated as a major player, but also needs to accept the responsibilities of a major player in the world. So I think you will see a more, I don't want to say diplomatic approach, but you won't have all of this stray voltage or these side, you know, there won't be name calling. Um, you know, one thing that um, uh, 
president-elect Biden is not is petty. I mean, this goes to China. It also goes to the point about, um, you know, Northern Ireland. Um, you know, he he won't. It, it's not personal, and it's it, the same with Boris Johnson. It's you know the the personalities aren't going to matter. It's going to be the substance that rules in this in this case. So I think you will see a um, a robust approach to China and across all of the issues. I mean, similar to the issues, uh, you know, the wide range of issues with Iran, it's not the same set of issues. Obviously, there's a big part on the uh, big piece on the economic side. Um, I would agree with Sir Paul that the withdrawal from TPP was a, a major mistake and whether and because the whole point of TPP was to try and have like-minded countries setting the rules of the road as opposed to um, leaving a vacuum and having China do it. So I think you'll see um, a more systematic approach to um, ticking down the, the various issues. China is going to be probably, I would say, the major foreign policy um, uh, issue um, you know, there's been talk about naming an Asia an Asia czar. I don't know what exactly that means or who that will be, but I think just the fact that you're seeing that um, ripple around in in Washington these days is um, uh, underscores the fact that this is um, going to be a major uh, part of the new administration's foreign policy efforts. Okay, uh, Dan. Can I jump in for just a second on that? Um, I just want to follow with a couple of thoughts. One is that um, it's clear that the, 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 the general consensus about China has shifted in the United States, um, in part because of President Trump and in part because of what China has done. Um, the, the easy thing for the Biden administration will be to say, in, instead of trying to do all this unilaterally, um, with a get tough approach to China, we're going to try to do it through alliances and, and particularly through Europe. Um, that may be easier said than done, but I think that's the that's the, the sort of strategic shift that you're going to see. Um, but uh, I think the bigger challenge for for the Biden administration, uh, again, in, in looking at what the Trump administration has done, um, President Trump has never really been able to articulate what is the ultimate goal of his approach to China? What does he really want to get out of the U.S.-China relationship? Uh, Biden will have to define that in a way that Trump has not been able to do that. Um, and that's going to involve both competition and cooperation. And, and that striking that balance, I think, um, will be the, the major challenge for the administration, as well as trying to, you know, navigate this through uh, a Europe that has, you know, lots of different ties to the Chinese um, through their own economies. Yeah, yeah. Paul, I see you nodding away there. Is that uh, is that how you see things? Yes, absolutely. I mean, just very, very quickly, semiconductors um, makes another connection to, to Taiwan. Um, the importance of 5G underlines the importance of, of a couple of Scandinavian countries. The desire of China to lead on the setting of international standards for AI, which actually is going to partly a forum debate, whether it's a UN forum or elsewhere. And I think actually one of the things that's going to happen to the UK is going to be slightly ironic in a way as it as it leaves the uh, leaves the EU. Um, the UK is going to find itself having to tune in, um, including in the media, to many more global fora um, where these things get played out. Um, and we're, of course, we're going to discover 
um, that we're constrained by all of those global four in the way that more or less everybody is, other than the United States and 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 China and perhaps the the EU. Yeah, uh, Emily, um, the um, all the panelists have just described very brilliantly the enormous um, pressure of domestic decisions and policies that uh, the new president is going to have to take, and then there are these great global challenges. Is there going to be any space in? Uh, uh, American policy for thinking about the UK at all, or is it? Um, will it be part? How will it? How will it articulate that? And how will it prioritize or not that matter? Oh, I think I think absolutely there that there will still be space for thinking about the UK because the UK is a, like all of the all of these different challenges internationally that we're talking about do involve or could involve the UK. Right? I think particularly on China, the US will want to work with the with the UK. I think, and this was back to what I was saying before about, you know, the importance that both sides put on symbols. I, I think that it's funny because, you know, obviously the New Statesman is a British publication and one of my colleagues was like, well, you know, 2021 is going to be all about Scotland. And I said, for you, yes, but, you know, for Americans, it probably won't be all about Scotland. Um, and so I think that there needs to be some grace on both sides to understand that we are not, we just can't be, this bilateral relationship will probably not be either side's top priority in 2021. And that's okay. You know, maybe, um, so So Boris Johnson wasn't Biden's first phone call, but he was what, the second or the third? So let him call Trudeau first and don't take it as a, oh, you've fallen down the, I, I think that if both sides can manage that to to be okay with the fact that they're not constantly checking in on one, or, you know, the, the, the top at the very top, they're not constantly checking in because obviously, again, at many levels down below, there there is going to be constant communication. I think as long as, as both sides can kind of accept that and be okay with that and understand that they need each other in these multilateral spaces, then yes, of course, there will be room for, for the US and the UK to, to work together in the very near future. I'm sure what your colleagues in London tell you, though, Emily, is that right now we're in a very needy mood in this country. <laughs> uh, yes, I've heard. <laughs> we need all the help we can get. Are I we... would never, of course, never say that the UK is in a needy mood. Being an American, that would be rude, but my colleagues can say it. Okay. Well, we've got a, a question here, uh, not uh, not with a name on it. It's a good question, which is about you know the likely de delay to the UK-US trade talks. Seems inevitable. The president said he's not going to be in a hurry to do any trade uh, deals before he fixes uh, domestic matters. The question is, is it possible trade talks are deprioritized so much that uh, FTA is not agreed at all under a Biden presidency? Not so much back of the queue, but not in the queue at all. What do, uh, what do you think about, uh, I'll pop that to you, Elizabeth, and then if Dan has a thought, that would be good. Um, I don't think it will be not in the queue at all, but I do think it will be down in the queue just because there are so many other issues um, confronting not just the United States, but but the world. Um, you know, someone I think it was Sir Paul talked about the silo between economics and the geopolitical um, world. Mm -hmm. And this is something that has come home uh, and, and I think hit, you saw this in this election, um, that there is this disconnect between foreign policy and economic policy and you know, globalization, which 20 years ago we all thought was a great thing and, you know, would lift all boats and all of that has, you know, shown that the the impact is very uh, unequal and inequality uh, has become a huge issue here in the United States, dealing with inequality, whether it's economic inequality, racial inequality. 
So I think you will have, um, as I said at the beginning, much more of a, a domestic focus on getting the economy in order here, um, dealing with some of these domestic issues, which will necessarily mean that things like an FTA with the UK will fall further down on the list. I don't have any indication that it's going to fall off the list. Um, but the other thing we have to keep in mind is the composition of the Congress. I mean, the Georgia elections will determine um, what happens in the Senate, but it's the House that has to um, deal with TPA, uh, which I think expires in the summer. Yeah. Uh, the Democrats right now have a razor thin margin still in the House, uh, which was why President-elect Biden has said he doesn't want to poach too many House members for key positions. He's already uh, indicated he's going to take two, Cedric Richmond and Marsha Fudge. They're in pretty safe districts. Um, but that's the other thing that they're going to have to, to look at. Um, what can they reasonably expect to get through Congress? And what are they going to, um, frankly, waste not waste chits, but use chits on to to try and and get through. You know, is it Biden care as he's talked about? Um, you know, these these other things. So it's not that it's unimportant, but that the list has just gotten much longer. Uh, list of things to get through. So it I think has been pushed down. Emily, you had a thought on this. I just wanted to say that I think that there are things that the Trump era where we can kind of go back, not to the way things were, but where the Biden administration can kind of reverse the policy. So obviously, you know, Biden can pay much more attention to climate change and admit that it's real, which and and try to rejoin Paris and all of that. Fine. There are also things that the Trump era has has fundamentally changed. And I agree with Elizabeth that I think that our approach to trade is one of those issues. I think that Americans all along, maybe not, maybe there's a space in the center where they don't, but in many, many places along the political spectrum now think of trade deals differently. Um, you have a much more powerful left of the Democratic Party than you did four years ago, which is also um, very critical of, of multilateral trade deals. On the right, there's the sense of, you know, this kind of Trumpian sense of, well, what have you done for me lately? Now, if I were in another country, I might say um, it, that, it's, that it's rich, that Americans are, who in many ways set the, the rules of global trade, are now mad about trade deals and their consequences. But the reality is that I think it will be more difficult now for any president to get any trade deal, particularly a big multilateral trade deal like NAFTA, or now it's now known as USMCA, or TPP through. I just think that we're in a, that, that domestically we're in a different, um, more defensive space almost toward trade, and that that's something that, uh, that any president's going to need to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah. Paul, you wanted to chip in. I just wanted to, I completely agree with what's just been said. I, I just wanted to add that even without these extra factors, we shouldn't be in any doubt that UK negotiating a, a trade agreement, the United States would be an absolutely bruising and brutalizing experience. I mean, I've been reading a great deal about trade policy in recent years, not nothing to do with the UK circumstances. And oh my God, it makes macro and finance look like a kind of you know, nice gentle sport. This is an absolutely brutal, brutal world. And when and the United States Constitution lends itself to this because it made its veto points 
in the House make make um, very hard lines um, credible. And you've seen a bit of that overnight, which is, of course, we can't apply um, the EU sanctions approved by the um, um, WTO on Boeing, etc. now that we're out of the um, US. And there'll be just lots and lots about that. And where the UK wants to draw lines, I think it will need to pass laws or motions in Parliament, probably laws, to make to make the UK's bargaining power and bargaining limits um, credible. And this is this is going to be a this is going to be a very interesting experience. It's a brutal contact sport, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd like to throw a question uh, to Dan, if I may, and this is from uh, George. And he says, what does the Biden presidency mean for climate? Will Biden be able to accelerate global climate in ambition using the US's diplomatic influence and economic leverage? And I guess the starting point to that, Dan, is what are the politics now in uh, in the US on this matter? Well, uh, I would say it's in, look at it in two ways. One is that there is, you know, there is considerable support for a much more active uh, and aggressive and ambitious climate policy uh, that that the Biden administration will be pursuing. Um, that was clear during the uh, the presidential election when he put together uh, different panels to look at different issues and 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 put, um, interestingly enough, John Kerry and uh, and uh, um, AOC, the, uh, the the rising star of the left in the House, uh, as as on the same panel uh, to work out some kind of an agreement in which you could have, in a sense, establishment Democrats uh, and the progressive wing relatively happy with something. Um, Biden will be pushed very hard by the left uh, to be even more aggressive. And in appointing Kerry, I think uh, as the as the climate czar, he's trying to signal how serious he is. He said that on day one that the United States will you know will rejoin the Paris uh, Climate Accords. Um, so there will be a very very strong push. But um, but there is also uh, within the United States, uh, particularly within parts of the Republican Party, a resistance to all of this. A belief uh, that there's you know there's climate deniers on the one hand, and there's you know there's the question of how aggressive it should be. So there will there will be battles on that, and Biden will be buffeted both from the right and the left. But I think it is uh, in his uh, in his mind, it's it's one of the most important initiatives that he wants to pursue uh, globally. I mean, one of the things he said is that the, the 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 Paris Accords literally do not go far enough. He would like to he would like to convene a summit. Um, soon after he becomes president, uh, to to literally set uh, even more aggressive standards, if if that's possible, and to, and to, and to create um, greater um, critical mass behind collective action to deal with it. So um, it it's a very significant element of uh, his new administration. Uh, one of uh, our audience takes us to task and he, and he's popped a question for um, or she uh, to Elizabeth, uh, which is um, haven't heard Putin's name mentioned yet. Um, uh, how will Biden approach the relationship with uh, Russia? How will it, if at all, play with Europe on this matter and in, indeed with the UK? It, it's, it's actually a, a, a very good question. Um, and you know the, the 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 Biden team, being so experienced, um, does have a lot of uh, experience dealing with with Putin and with with Russia. Um, obviously, it'll be a different relationship than President Trump has. I mean, he sort of played footsie with um, Putin and has not confronted him on a number of things. 
um, you know, starting with interference in the 2016 elections, um, the you know, human rights issues, uh, you know, the various uh, assassination attempts that have happened. So I think you will see a, um, a, a willingness to take on Russia a bit more. But I think you will also see this is where alliances will come into play and will be very important. Um, it's not going to be the U.S. doing it alone, but it is working with Europe, um, the U.K., the EU, uh, and others to try and um, put not pressure on, on Putin, but to try and kind of set the rules of the road a little better than have been set in the past. Yeah. Um, so I would put Russia, and I was remiss for not mentioning that as a, as a key issue. I, I think, I still think China is up front. Um, Russia's up there, Iran's up there. Uh, you know, you have the Middle East. There, there are no shortages of challenges that this team is going to have to confront, but that's certainly one of them. Yeah, I think, I think it's worth adding, Richard, very quickly that um, if the Biden administration does change tack on on Putin's Russia, there could be questions for London in terms of kind of I'm no expert in this, but kind of Russian money and perceptions of dirty money um, in in London. You know, at its strongest it would be kind of clean up London. I don't actually know whether London needs cleaning up, but it, but if it does, I can imagine that becoming a pressure point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one question here is about um, the discussions that are going on tonight in Brussels. Um, how would, if at all, um, the outcome of the negotiations between the UK and um, the trade deal affect American, uh, US relationships, uh, President-elect, Biden relationship with Europe. Is that a matter that is um, of significance or is already, as it were, Brexit taken for granted and we move on? Does these week's discussions, I'll throw this one to Emily, actually make um, uh, a big difference to the um, to the outcome? I mean, I think it makes a big difference insofar as it affects peace between Ireland and Northern Ireland, right? If, if that, if, if they end up spilling into that, then it affects it. I think that, I think that, and I'm sure that there are, is, some member of Congress who disagrees with me, but but I think generally it's accepted that Brexit is happening. We understood that you know there were two elections in 2016, and your country and mine um, made choices, and now we have to live with the consequences of those choices uh, as history unfolds. I do think that it is probably better for everyone involved if there are still good cordial working relationships between a good cordial working relationship between the UK and the EU. Um, I think that benefits the U.S. as well. Um, but I, I don't think that, you know, I, I don't think that the U.S. is, to be honest, I, I don't, I don't know how important the exact constellation of the agreement that's reached is important to the United States, with the very large caveat of the one thing that many Democrats and even some Republicans have said, you know, don't, don't, just don't touch it and we can continue to work together. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes. Uh, just, just to add, I think that um, you're right. I don't think the U.S. has a um, uh, a horse in this race as to exactly what the deal looks like, except for um, Northern Ireland is is very important. But I think, and I do think that there is an acceptance that yes, this is this is going to happen. How messy? 
the the split is is going to be important to watch. However, you know if if they can come to the two sides can come to an agreement, um, and it's not a hard Brexit or a you know just all right we're leaving now. It'll make it a lot easier to work with both the EU and the UK on all of these common issues of interest. Yes, indeed. Um, I'm going to use my privilege to ask a question of my own now for Dan, uh, which is what is a summit for democracy and do we care about it? What is the, I'm sorry? The summit for democracy that uh, uh, President-elect Biden has been talking about. Is it a, is it, is that just words or does it actually mean something? Well, I think at this point it's more words and symbolism. Um, I mean, the democracy in this country has been under strain over the last four years, as everybody knows. And and um, and the you know the the perhaps final chapter is is unfolding as we speak. As I as I said at the top, um, the this president has sought to undermine and weaken various democratic institutions. Um, and part of what the, the, the next administration is going to have to do uh, is to rebuild and, and build back in the resilience, some of which we are seeing through the courts right now, um, but to assure that the, that, the, that the pillars of democracy in this country are as strong as they need to be and, and, and stronger than they have been during the, the Trump administration. Um, in terms of, of thinking about that, um, in terms of foreign policy, I don't, you know, I, I don't see a major initiative on that front uh, at this point, given everything that we've been talking about this morning in terms of the priorities of, of foreign policy. But, but, uh, but the question of the, the status of democracy in this country is, is something that's certainly on the table and, and uh, talked about and, and worried about by many, many people. If I could just jump in, I think a a related issue is that the U.S. has always preached democracy. You know, we've always said it's, you know, we we want to see democracy spread. I think there's a, a recognition that around the globe, democracy is in retreat to a, a certain extent. And I think this will, this whole initiative will be a way to um, not just preach, but actually let our actions speak uh -huh. instead of just words. And I, Dan is absolutely right that democracy in the U.S. has been under siege. Um, and I think it's this is an attempt to kind of put things back on the right track. I, I, I would strike a different note, actually. I think that we may, although we may be talking about different things, I think it's possible that we will see an informal grouping emerge between the G7 that we know and the G20. The only Asian country in the G7 is Japan. G20, the G20 has countries around the table where this is no surprise. The West are not prepared to discuss some issues completely openly at the G20 or indeed in bodies I used to be um, part of. So I think um, the possibility of some kind of new informal grouping, remember these things always emerge informally, of kind of roughly the G7 plus Australia, South Korea and, and India. Um, is a kind of real possibility, at least in my world of, of, of economic policy. I think this goes back to what everybody was saying about building alliances. And I think that won't just be through the standard multilateral organizations. It will also be kind of what, what groupings do you want to um, have um, where you can talk about things among democracies? And I think the interesting name there is India whether it becomes part of, whether any such initiative happens, 
and whether India is part of it. And of course, the skirmishes on the Indian-Chinese border have um, would kind of push India in that direction. And we're certainly hearing that sort of discussion about the in increase with Australia, South uh, Korea, India it, from number 10 and other places in London now. It seems to be something that uh, the British are rather enthusiastic about. Here's a question for Emily. I don't know if this, I don't know if Guy Benson is her colleague, but he's saying, is there any indication how Biden administration would look at Scottish independence? Is this? Um... I was on another panel and somebody also asked me, they were like, what are they saying in the US about Scottish independence? Um, you know, I think they'll. I think the line will probably be that they'll leave that up to to Scotland and and the UK. I don't. I don't know that they're going to choose to get super involved in the fight about Scotland, which is not to say that it's not an important issue. I'm not trying to. You know, I understand this is, uh, but I just. I just don't know that Scotland, which again I appreciate is a large issue there, uh, is not going to take so much time here. And, and um, Graham Jones has a question which is even more uh, uh, micro in a way. He wants to know who the uh, Biden's ambassador to the court of James at St. James is going to be and who are the runners and uh, riders. Is any, can anybody volunteer that one or do we? Um... Uh, it, it, wasn't, it, it was floated that um, that um, Cindy McCain, John McCain's widow, would be the ambassador to London. So you can make yeah. that okay. what you will. Fine. Well, we're, we, we, we have to draw to a close now. I mean, I've heard lots of interesting words today about uh, a professional, systematic, uh, serious. I've also heard that the world has changed a lot in, in the last four years, which it uh, clearly has, and that it, uh, the US to um, play its full part in it, it, under this new administration will be seeking to work with others and will need to work with others if it's um, uh, if it's not um, if it's going to get uh, policy um, traction. Uh, so I think these are thoughtful and encouraging words uh, on which to end. I'd like to thank the panel so much um, for their contributions and thank the audience very much for joining us and for their questions. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.